I'm Nora McNerney, and this is Terrible Thanks for Asking. And this is Hannah Meacock-Ross. Hi! I'm recording because I wanted to get the walk-up sounds. Okay. So, okay. yeah. Excellent. Hey, everybody, I'm Hannah. <laughs> it's March 2021, and Hannah has driven from her house on the east side of Minneapolis over to north Minneapolis, where there's a little free bread box. A simple little wooden box on top of a wooden post with a hinge door and a sign encouraging people to take some free bread. Around the bread box are neighbors, stopping by to get a loaf of artisan, no-need bread, a baguette, a couple bagels. Every Saturday, the bread box is refilled with free, homemade bread for the neighborhood. It's an act of love from Ashley Groshek, who comes from a long line of bread-loving women. So... Bread has always been a really important thing for me. Growing up, my grandma baked bread, right? And when my grandma baked bread, oh my. Like, she baked like 15 loaves at a time, and she would send you home with one. And I was like, why don't you love me? So I grew up baking bread with my grandma. Like, baking bread adjacent. Like, she would give me some dough and be like, here, don't touch the rest of this. (laughs) This free bread is an act of love, but it's also an act of grief, a way for Ashley to physically work out the feelings of losing her wife, Corbett. Corbett and Ashley met in college at the University of Wisconsin-Stout. They met in class, a class called Interpersonal Effectiveness, and Ashley's interpersonal effectiveness was strong. She said, hey, what's that boy's name in front of you? And I said, I don't know what's your name. And that was our meeting. What drew you to Corbett? Oh, God. She had a personality that was bigger than life. Just bigger than life. I mean, her smile and, like, she just lit up a room. And she was cute as hell. So then we started talking, and uh, you can't see me, but she came over to borrow, I'm air quoting, my notes, um, at my dictionary um, a few times um, that that class. So that was my freshman year, and we stayed friends. But there was always a thing. There was always a thing between us, and all of our friends were like, oh my God, will you two please just do something? Because we can't handle you. And I would come over, and I would pop into her room, and I was like, hey, how are you? She's like, hey. She's like, what's up? It's like, I haven't showered yet, but I thought I'd say hi. I'm going to go take a shower. And then I'd come back an hour later, still not showered, and still tell her I didn't shower and whatever. And so this dance went on for a year. It's a spark right away for Ashley. Corbett is funny and smart and clever and cute. And the two of them do this whole will-they-won't-they kind of dance that most good rom-coms do, where everyone can see these two people are going to end up together. Even the moms. My mom was on campus. I was like, oh, that's Corbett. Isn't she cute? And my mom told me like five or six years later, she was like, damn, shit, she's going to marry that one. So my mom knew even before I did that there was a thing. Ashley does have a girlfriend at the time, but that relationship is rocky. And one night, the two of them get in this huge fight and Ashley walks home to her dorm, totally bummed out. And Corbett just happens to get back to the dorm at the same time. She happened to come home just drunk as heck. 
and came upstairs and called on the front desk and was like, I need Ashley. <laughs> so I went upstairs for, for drunken Corbett in the bathroom. She like fell off the toilet and crawled across the floor and all sorts of shit. College is such an elegant time for so many of us. Oh, it was just beautiful. Like we were just graceful. Corbett had cerebral palsy and used a wheelchair. So she fell off the toilet and her bra got caught on her foot pedal and she was just hanging there. And she was like, leave me here. I'll be fine. (laughs) No. So, you know, we detach her and whatever. And we would have hooked up that night, but our friend Julie wouldn't leave us alone because she was like, you have a girlfriend and she's drunk. And I was like, fair. But Corbett sobers up the next day and Ashley and her girlfriend eventually break up. And then the two of them are back on campus after summer break. I call Corbett and I was like, hey, did you hear that Lindsay and I broke up? And she was like, no. I was like, yeah. Um, so, you know, last year when we had that thing, she's like, yeah. I was like, are you still interested? She was like, no. I was like, can I come over anyway? She was like, sure. Corbett seems like she isn't interested, but when Ashley shows up, she can tell Corbett has gotten ready for the visit. So she wasn't interested in you, but she still got ready to see you. Absolutely. She was still interested in me, but she liked to pretend that she wasn't. So I show up and three hours later, one of us is naked. (laughs) We were together ever since. So I stayed until I think 3 a.m. and went back to my place. And then the next morning I came back with breakfast and I knocked on her door and I was like, hey, I brought breakfast. And she said, ah, I'm not ready. And I was like, all right, cool. And I ate her breakfast sandwich and my breakfast sandwich. And I came back later with lunch. Um, And then the rest is history. I mean, we just fell stupid in love right away. And we're just inseparable from the beginning. From the moment we, like, decided we were a thing, we were a thing. And so I was just 20. Like, I had just turned 20. And so this is, like, August, like, 30th or so. And then, like, around September 6th, I was like, hey, we want to make this official. Like, we're doing this thing. We're, we're hooking up. We're really enjoying our time together. We've been flirting for a year. Like, I would boy flirt with her. I would, like, pull her hair and, like, put highlighters in her boobs. Like, I had no game. I once ate seasoned french fries with ketchup, and she told me I had ketchup breath, and I brushed my teeth, I'm not even kidding, like, 15 times. She was like, you still have ketchup breath. And to this day, almost 20 years later, I still don't eat ketchup with seasoned fries. They're in love, and 10 years after graduating from college, they do what a lot of people in love end up doing. They get married, sort of. They have this big, huge wedding celebration without filing any paperwork. One, because same-sex marriage wasn't legally recognized at the time. And two, because part of being in this interabled relationship is navigating the benefit system in the U.S., which is precarious. So Corbett had cerebral palsy. And because of that, she qualified for medical assistance under 1619B, if we really want to get into the technicalities of it, which means you're disabled before the age of 21, I think, which means that she qualified for MA up until she made a certain amount of money. And so if we had gotten legally married, 
she would have lost her MA benefits and then she would have had to rely on like regular insurance benefits through work. And wheelchairs are expensive. So no marriage for now, but they did have one hell of a wedding. How was I, Bridezilla? Oh my. I was like, what do we want to do? She's like, I don't care. I just want a pretty dress that's pink and I don't care about anything else. And I was like, we need to do this and we need to do this and we need to do this. I grew up Catholic. And so like, I wanted a big old Polish wedding. And so I was like, we have to have this and that and like uh, just all of these stuff. And she could have cared less. And I was just demanding and she just didn't care. (laughs) I made my own, I handmade all 200 invitations and the boutonnieres and the table flower things. Wow. 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 Yes. I would never do that. I was more of a Corbett. So um, (laughs) both times I was like, oh my God, who cares? Ashley cares. And even though Corbett mostly just cared about having a pink puffy dress, she cares too about having their partnership recognized and celebrated. Because a lot of times that relationship feels invisible. I was rarely read as a partner. I was always read as, oh, are you guys sisters? Is this your care worker? We would go to restaurants and people would be like, and what does she want? And I'd hold up the menu. I was like, I don't know. Why don't you ask her? She does have a master's degree. So, yeah, it really impacted a lot of things. Also, I did more things as a couple than I think other relationships have. Like, I put on her shoes every morning. And I hooked her bra. When we would travel, like, I would have to help her a lot more because not a lot of places are accessible. So I would help her transfer and all sorts of things. We had this, like, running joke if she needed help with something. She was like, I need you not to be Ashley right now. And I would go, who do you want me to be? Um, (laughs) And that was her way of making it okay to ask for help. I don't know, like, being a partner to somebody is not just, like, being able to, like, have sex with them and, like, I don't know, like split household duties, but it is, you know, eventually for everyone, by the way, you're snapping someone's bra, you're wiping someone's butt, you're helping each other. Absolutely. And if you're not comfortable knowing that you can wipe somebody's butt someday, then maybe you should think about who you're with. We'll be right back while you think about that sentence. We're back. It's February 2020, and it's been about nine years since Corbett and Ashley's wedding ceremony, and they're planning to get married legally in a month. Corbett has insurance through her work now. Same-sex marriage is legal. They can do whatever they want, and what they want is a legal marriage. So Valentine's Day, we got a marriage license, went out to dinner, and saw Brandy Carlisle. Okay, let's slow down. Brandy Carlisle is... The greatest Valentine's date of all time. Absolutely. Yeah, I've seen her probably about 20 times. I watched her live stream concert last night at the Ryman and I sobbed the entire time. I have have goosebumps. What is the song of hers that does that to you? Turpentine will make me just melt. 
And I just hear Corbett singing off pitch and off tone and off tempo, trying to yodel with, <laughs> with Brandy. Yeah. They have the marriage license. They have Brandy Carlisle. They have each other. February 2020, the world ended for me. It started with a cold. We both got sick. She didn't have a fever, but she was hot, very warm. She ran hot anyway and went through and like couldn't, couldn't breathe, couldn't catch her breath. Like her lungs were always just like really, really rough. And she used an entire albuterol inhaler in one week, a brand new inhaler, 200 puffs, one week. I had a headache that wouldn't go away and I was prone to migraines and thought maybe it was just a migraine. It's a stressful week for Corbett in a lot of ways. She's not feeling great, and she's also really busy with work and family stuff. That Wednesday, she wasn't feeling well. And that Thursday, she calls me in the middle of the day, and she's like, I think I'm having a heart attack. And I was like, fuck if you're having a heart attack. Like, I'm the one with high blood pressure. You're fine. Like, what? No. So I pick her up, and we drive home. And, you know, we call the nurse line, and we we kind of go through the symptoms, and we pull into the driveway and the nurse is like, nope, pretty sure she's having a heart attack. You need to get to the hospital. The hospital is in network, well-regarded, and they tell Ashley and Corbett that Corbett has had a stress-induced heart attack. They didn't run all of the tests that they could have run for her because she was wiggly. And in order for her to have an MRI, they had to sedate her. And we were there Thursday, Friday, Saturday. They were supposed to run the MRI Friday and we waited all day for them and they kept making up all these excuses why they couldn't. So when Saturday morning came around and they said, you need to stay till Monday because we're going to do the MRI Monday. She was like, what am I going to do today and tomorrow? They're like, you're just going to sit here. And she was like, why can't we run the MRI today? Ashley just wants to get Corbett home where she can be comfortable. And she was under more stress in the hospital than she would have been at home because the bed wasn't right. She couldn't pee, you know, whatever. I would assume a hospital is more accessible than the average place. So tell me like about some of the things that people who have not had to think about that would not realize is inaccessible. Well, first off, those beds are not comfortable. And so like she couldn't get into a position that was comfortable There was no way for her to transfer independently from bed to her chair. She was allowed to be in her wheelchair, which was nice. You know, when you have a disability, right, and you set up your bathroom for yourself, like you set it up in a way that's going to be the most effective for you and your independence. So you don't have to burn energy trying to pee, right? So the bathroom was backwards. The bars were in positions that were illogical and there wasn't enough room for her to turn around to put her chair where she needed to do. And then like, there's no way she can wipe her own ass in the hospital. So there I am, you know, wiping her ass as one would do for your partner in that sort of situation. It's accessible in the fact that bars exist, that you can use them if you're ambulatory because they're simple. But like, if you are in a wheelchair and you, you need assistance, like there's just not enough space. So they leave the hospital that Saturday without the MRI. They go back home to their dogs. They're told to come back in two weeks for follow-up tests, but no MRI is ever scheduled. And it feels like things are going to be okay. Okay in a very Corbett kind of way. My wife 
could get herself and her dog in so much trouble all the time. Like she'll come home from walk. Jerry and I got wrapped around a tree and I had to wait for 45 minutes for someone to come like untangle us. So I'm at work and it's like the Tuesday after the heart attack. So it's the first day I leave them home alone. And she texts me and she goes, you're going to hate me. But I was like, why? She's like, well, Jerry and I went to the river. So it's February 25th. So it's mud season in Minnesota. And they went down to the Mississippi and she let him go through whatever puddle he wanted. And my golden retriever was so covered in mud that the two of them had to stay in the kitchen for three hours until I got home. And not only did I have to bathe my dog, but I had to hose off her wheels and mop the kitchen. And they were in their happy place. Like they could have cared less. She was so proud of that mud pile that she made in my kitchen. Our friend brought her baby over because Corbett loved babies, just loved them. And so she got to hold a baby. She got to take her dog to the river and covered in mud. She had a great final week of life. Just a great one. Yeah, that, that brings me peace then and, and still now. She had a great final week of life, because this is the last week of Corbett's life, and neither of them know it yet. And it's Saturday, and her mom comes over for lunch. Her mom loved to cut onions on my wood cutting board, and this is kind of relevant, so I'm just going to put that out there, that I came home from work, and there was Nancy cutting onions on my wood cutting board, and I was like, don't be an asshole today, Ashley. Just let it go. Just let it go. So I took a deep breath and let it go. And we hung out and we had a great day. It was pretty chill. And then she was sitting on the sofa at like 10 o'clock at night. And my sister-in-law calls, who's a nurse. And Corey was really upset that Corbett never had the tests run and was just really worried about like what was going to happen next. And she's like, I'm just really worried. Like what happens if it happens again? And I was like, it's not going to happen again. Like they said, it was a freak accident. She had been under some stress with work. Like it was just a stress thing. Like she's chill now. Everything's cool. And I look and I watch her start to collapse and she's sitting on the sofa and she's just like starting to collapse. And she said, I think it's happening again. And I was like, fuck, it's not happening again. You're just anxious because we're talking about it. And, you know, she's like, oh my God, I'm going to be sick. So she like throws up and... I went into asshole mode and it was not my finest moment <laughs> at all. And when I get scared, I kind of turn into a dick. And while I was packing a go bag, I was like, are you sure this is what it is? Are you sure it's not anxiety? What the fuck? And I was like, you need to tell me if we need to go now and was swearing and yelling and packing a bag as she's puking and shitting and dying on the toilet. Not my finest moment. <laughs> Managed to get her off the toilet and back in her chair and get her dressed. And I drop her off at the emergency room. And like a fucking rock star, like the first heart attack, she took herself in and checked herself in while I parked the car. 
And so I park the car, she gets herself in and I come running in and we get to the room. And at that point, she can't even explain to them how to get out of her own chair. Like her body was shutting down at that point. Her heart was giving out. And so I have her put her arms around me and we're just going to do a standing pivot transfer and her whole body gives out and I almost throw her across the room and like barely get her on the bed and the orderlies catch her and I go flying and I'm like, what the fuck is all of this, right? We get her in bed and, you know, I somehow managed to take out her earrings and take off her bracelets and take off her necklace and they're like, we need to cut off her pants. I was like, cut off her pants. She's unresponsive. They can't get any sort of like readable EKG. They've given her a million meds. They don't know what her heart is doing because it's not acting like a normal heart attack, right? Every EKG was different. She wasn't responding to any meds. She couldn't breathe. At one point, she was on like an oxygen thing, like a Bane mask over her face. And they said, well, we're going to take her back to the cath lab. And you know, I, I kiss her on the forehead and I tell her I love her, you know, and I say, come back to me. And her last words are, I'm dying. I'm dying. Don't let me die. They wheel her away. And here I am left with a backpack, a unicorn pillow and a fucking power wheelchair. (laughs) Like, what do I do? Well, they sent me to the wrong waiting room. And so I wait there for a little while and try and find out where she is and got yelled at by a nurse for being somewhere I shouldn't and started sobbing. And so this is probably around midnight on leap day, of course, the last day she's alive on leap day because this woman has to go out with style. And they finally figure out where she is. And the dude at the front desk informs me that They're having a hard time getting her stable and that they've had to shock her over 20 times and that they had to do aggressive CPR. So this is probably four in the morning at this point. And they said, she's stable, but we can't move her from the cath lab. And we might have to put her on total life support. One of her legs was really tight um, because of the joy of CP, right? Your muscles are all jacked up. Um, and they couldn't get blood flow to her tight leg and they couldn't get her stable. And at that point, I start calling people. Her mom got there and brother got there probably around 5 a.m. And that's when we found out that she uh, had had a catastrophic heart attack and was going to be on total life support and had a one in four chance of survival. And I ran out the room. Um, and sobbed. And then I was finally able to see her at about 9.30 in the morning. And she had three tubes in her that were like, oh my God, the size of quarters, I would say. So she was on a heart and lung bypass machine. So they were circulating her blood and on two lung machines. And every time the doctor came back, it was like, we don't know what happened. You know, they were trying to be optimistically hopeful, 
you know, they're like one in four. She could pull through. Someone's got to be the one. It could be her. Sure. And I was like, fuck that. Oh, my God. If she pulls through and is more disabled than she was before, this woman is going to be so murdery that, like, we should just unplug her now because I don't want to deal with whatever wakes up. (laughs) Because she told me, she always said, if I am more disabled than I am now or if my brain is not my brain, I don't want to do this. Bless those nurses. I looked at the nurse and I said, I need you to be honest with me. And I said, have you ever seen anyone recover who has been this bad? Like, have you ever seen anyone make it out of this? Who has been on this much life support? And she was like, people are gonna, I was like, don't fuck with me. And she was like, no, I've never seen anyone come out of this. And I was like, thank you. That's what I needed to hear. Because I knew, I knew that she wasn't coming back. And then I went home for a couple hours and slept. And while I was gone, I'm an exaggerator, but I'm not even kidding. There were about 40 people that showed up to see her. Like all of our friends, all of her work friends, family, that just kept trickling through. And the cardiac ICU people got so annoyed with us that they banned it to only family, immediate family that could go see her. And so... Even in that moment, I was able to have peace that she wasn't alone while I went to go take care of myself and to try and get some sleep. So the 29th was the heart attack. So at around 11 p.m. on the 1st, I overhear the nurse saying that one of her pupils wasn't responding. And my sister-in-law, who's the nurse, was in there. And I was like, Corey. And she's like, Ashley. And I was like, Corey. And she's like, yeah, that's not good. I was like, that's not good. And I look at the nurse and I was like, what does that mean? And she was like, oh, we'll wait for neurology in the morning. And I went, no, you won't. Again, if her brain is not her brain, right, we're not doing this. I made her a promise that if anything happened that she wouldn't be herself, we weren't going to do this. So I demanded a CT scan. And so at 11 p.m., I have never seen people pack a person up so quickly in my life. And they pack her up and they send her off to the CT. And they bring her back and I was like, can I see her? And the doctor looks at me and turns on the light to the conference room. And I went, it's bad, isn't it? She said, it's bad. And so I call her brother because her mom and brother left when I left at like two in the afternoon and didn't come back. And the nurse says that she has had a catastrophic stroke on the left side of her brain. And the right side of her brain has had several mini strokes. And essentially at this point, she was just brainstem functioning. And, you know, when I came back at like four in the afternoon, I knew. When I kissed her and touched her, I knew that she wasn't coming back to me. I knew that she was gone, even at four o'clock. And it wasn't until 11 o'clock that we had, like, we had that confirmation. So it's the second, it's like 1.30 in the morning. Um, we find out about the strokes. I tell her brother, you know, you need to get your mom out here. So I had a good hour and a half to say goodbye to her. At one point I was like, all right, can we turn the machines off? And my dad told me I had to wait for her family. And I was like, fine. Um, <laughs> It's like, I made that promise, right? Like, I would never leave you in this situation. 
So I said my goodbyes. I was ridiculous at one point. My dad told me that she was with God now, and I told him to fuck his God. My mom lost her twin sister when she was 18, and I asked my mom how she survived, and she said, well, it made me the person I am today. And I said, great, I'm fucked. Um, and then, uh, I looked at Corbett and I said, I wish that we had had sex one more time because God damn it, you deserved a 10. Um, and, uh, the nurse started laughing and said, I've never heard anyone say that to their partner. And I was like, well, you know, we had a good sex life and her family came and I gave them their space. And then, at 3 a.m., we decided that we were going to turn off the machines. And so we gathered everyone around. And it was my brother and his wife, my dad and his girlfriend, my mom, my best friend, Jenny, Corb's mom and brother. And then my random friend, Wit, who showed up, who had no idea what was going on, but just like felt the calling and was there. And so Wit shows up and we're all sitting there. And back to Brandy Carlisle, right? She loved the High Women, which was the country super group that Brandy formed. And I don't know if you've heard the song Crowded Table, but that's how we lived our life, right? Like we have this big house in North Minneapolis and a big old table. And our whole purpose was to have people around. Like we've had people lived with us for months at a time. We threw lavish, big parties for all of our friends. Like we had a house for everyone. So I start giving this speech about how amazing of a human she was. And I'm about to play the crowded table song. And instead I play the, I will be your lucky penny do 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 song. Okay, I don't know if we can play this song, but it's the opposite of the song that Ashley wanted to play. It's a breakup song, a breakup anthem, (laughs) a breakup anthem, the kind of song you belt out in the car. I mean, the lyrics are, and I will, I mean, God, I want to just sing it, but I can't sing. Um, I can't sing. Okay, the lyrics are loose change. I don't mean a thing to you. Loose change. You don't see my value. I'm going to be somebody's lucky penny someday instead of rolling around in your pocket like loose change. Not the song Ashley wants to play. But Ashley does get the right song playing. And then she says goodbye to Corbett. And we tell stories of who she was as a person and just talk about how she has impacted our lives. And, you know, we say goodbye. I just couldn't let go of her hand. Finally, we left. Her brother pushed her empty wheelchair out of the hospital, you know. And the guy at the intake for the ER was like, how is she doing? And I was like, well, she's fucking dead. (laughs) I kept going. He was like, oh, shit. Um, (laughs) And, you know, we pack her chair in the car. And I'm sitting in the back seat to my dad's driving. And I'm just like, he's not going home the way I want him to go home, right? And I just get pissed. And I tell him to pull over and I kick him out of the front seat of the car and I drive home. And I'm driving out of Minneapolis past the Twin Stadium just to get onto 94. And all I could think about was who is going to go to the state fair with me now? Because I am obsessed with the state fair. 
Like I would drag that woman at least five times. And I'm in need of a double knee replacement and have incredible arthritis in my knees. And so for the fair, I rent a scooter and I just visualized myself at the top of the hill by the haunted house, looking down at the crowd of people. And it's just me by myself in a scooter, you know, alone at the state fair. And I was like, of all the things to think about moving forward, it's this. What the hell? We get home and I walk in the house and I see the goddamn cutting board. And I was like, I can't believe I made such a big deal about onions on a cutting board. And I went to bed. And that was my day. We'll be right back. We're back. And Ashley is now a widow. My army was amazing. I was not left alone for two weeks. At one point, I was like, I need to try and be alone for a little while. And I made it an hour. (laughs) And then I called somebody. It was also the week of the primaries. And my dad really was like trying to figure out when to leave because he was annoying me. He he tried to be helpful by cleaning and he took everything. We had separate bathrooms because we had a three-bathroom house. Like, why share a bathroom? Her bathroom, by the way, was hot pink with glitter full of mermaids and um, seashells and unicorns. And I look and my dad has taken everything off the counter from her bathroom and put it on the floor to clean the bathroom. And I almost murdered him. And so I was like, you need to go home. I just, I need some space. And I said, I'm going to go vote. You can be gone when I get back because it's the primaries. And so I walked to vote and the woman is super chipper. So this is like three days after she dies, right? It's the primaries. And the woman goes, and how are you? And in my brain, I'm going, don't be weird. Don't be weird. Don't be weird. Don't be weird. And I go, it's complicated. (laughs) She was like, okay, go vote. (laughs) (laughs) and then I came back and he was gone and just you know I just continued to be surrounded by love and then two weeks later the world ended and we were all on a lockdown for COVID and I was alone alone not just lonely but alone March 2020 in Minnesota was cold and gray and miserable even without the recent loss of a wife. Even without a pandemic, spring just didn't want to show up. And around this time, this is early quarantine, shelves were being wiped out. The laziest of Americans were all of the sudden trying to become survivalists or maybe just trying to occupy our time. And people got really into baking bread, including Ashley. I got like a wild hair up my ass and called my mom. And I was like, so I got Betty Crocker circa 1974. Which bread recipe is grandma's? And so I read the two recipes and she's like, I think it's this one. Which, by the way, was the wrong recipe. 
So I'm like, okay, I'm going to make bread. So I make a loaf of bread and it turns out like a brick. It was terrible. Uh, It was so dense. I don't even know what I did wrong. So I tried it again. And the act of hand kneading bread was so grounding to me. And so I was like, okay, let's try this again. And so like I would make bread like on a Monday and I would eat the bread all week and then I would run out of bread and I would make it again. And every time I would make it, I would feel a sense of peace. And so I'm a marriage and family therapist by trade, right? And so I took a month off and I went back to work in April and I was just having a really hard time staying focused in session. And I found that the days that I would make bread in the morning before I started therapy, like the more I cared, right? The easier it was to do my job. And so I was like, all right, let's do this. So I started making bread a little bit more often and was just like finding it really, really peaceful. And I was good at it. Like I made good bread. And so I would give it away. I'm like, this is great. And then I was like, well, what other breads can I make besides white bread? And so I tried a baguette and then I bought a cookbook and tried some other breads. I tried challah bread. That was okay. I tried ciabatta like three times and messed it up every time. So we're done with ciabatta. Just finding this peace in being able to have this full body sensory experience with making bread really made it so that I could continue to move on, like move forward, not move on. We don't move on. We just continue moving in a direction of, I hope. (laughs) And so I started doing this a couple times a week, you know, like, oh, I'm like, oh, the neighbors haven't had bread in a while. Right. And turned 39 at the end of August, right? The state fair is canceled. My summer is ruined, whatever. You don't have to go to the state fair alone. No one's going to the state fair. Right. So I didn't have to deal with that. It was great. My friend Sarah came up from Austin. She didn't want to spend her 40th birthday alone. And she didn't want me to be alone for my birthday. I'm still making the wrong bread recipe, by the way, at this point, still making the wrong crusty bread. But you know, whatever, we're experimenting and it's fun. And Sarah's like, this stuff is amazing. It's like, cool, this is fun, right? So we're making bread. For my birthday, we went tubing down the river in Hastings and we took with us a six pack of beer, some sparkling water and a loaf of bread. (laughs) That's what we went tubing down the river with. And my friend Kara stuck it in her boob and it was great. And we were just like tubing down the river, drinking beer and eating bread. And it was like the most normal I had felt since becoming a widow, you know? So why do the daily bread? Because I realized how much it helped me focus and how much it grounded me. And like, it became a meditation. Like I would turn on music and I would hand knead for 10 minutes, right? When you make bread, you can let your KitchenAid do the work for you. And you can just like plug it in, turn it on and forget it for like eight minutes, right? But I got in it, like my hands were in it. And I would notice how it would just calm me down. And on the days I didn't make bread, I was less focused. I was less engaged. I had less bandwidth, you know? My widow brain got real foggy on the days I didn't bake. And on the days I did, I was more present in my body and more present in my work 
and more present with my friends. So I said, let's just do it. Let's just see what happens every day. What happens is she has more bread than her friends and family can eat. And the little bread box is born. It's not a crowded table. It's not safe to gather like that yet. But it's a way of creating that community and connection that were such a big part of Ashley and Corbett's relationship. And so now I bake bread every day. And I have a little box in front of my house. And I fill it on Saturdays. And people come and get bread. It's baguettes. It's this overnight bread that has like this pink Himalayan sea salt on top. Apparently, I make an incredible bagel. I've done cheddar bread. I tried bialets like four times. And again, they were done with bialets. They didn't work. Don't ask me to make them. I won't. Um, Pretzel bites. I make a mean, mean cheddar bay biscuit. And in all of this, my grandma dies in September, and I get her actual bread recipe. And that just ups my white bread game to, like, nobody's business. And I find out that my grandma only used Dakota-made flour, and she only used Fleshman's yeast. And so I evolved then to Dakota-made flour and Fleshman's yeast. And I'm telling you, it makes a difference. Quality flour and quality yeast. That sounds like an infomercial. Let me tell you the secret to perfect bread, okay? (laughs) It lies in these two products. So how far into this experiment are you when you meet your new person? Yeah, so I start doing it in August. And in September, you know, we got the widow group, right? We got our widow friends. And all my widows, all my COVID widows are getting lonely. And they're like, they're doing the dating thing. and They're doing the Tinder. And I was like, I'm fucking horny as hell. And I want to at least make out with somebody. So I download her, the lesbian dating app. And I start chatting with Lauren. And I was like, hey, I have dogs and I make bread. What's up? <laughs> you know, because like, how do you... How do you have game after 19 years of being with somebody? I don't know how to date. And I didn't have game at the beginning. And so I was like, all right, we'll use bread. So it was just a lot of chatting around bread. And Lauren and I connected instantly on this really deep level. We chatted for like a month or so. And I freaked the fuck out in like mid-October and was like, okay, I haven't met her, but like, I want to text her in the morning and I want to text her during all day. Like, no, Ashley, you can't text during therapy sessions. You're working, put your phone away. And then I find out that her dad has cancer. And I was like, (laughs) hi. Yeah, no, fresh widow, like not going down that adventure again, not going to deal with another death in my life. And I told Lauren in October, that I wasn't ready. I wasn't emotionally available and I didn't want to hurt her because we had formed this amazing connection. And so she was like, okay, well, can I still text you? Can we still be friends? And I was like, yeah, sure, totally. And they are friends. They text, they keep in touch. And like with Corbett, underneath that friendship, there's a spark of something more. Lauren texts and says, 
you know, I'm having a really bad day. Like my dad's in the hospital. I can't see him because it's COVID and I'm just sad. And I was like, I have bread and puppies. You want to hang out? She's like, yeah. I grabbed some loaves of bread out of the freezer or some fresh ones probably and throw my dogs in the van and drive up to St. Paul and I hang out with Lauren. And that's the first time we met in person, right? But we're both masked, right? I've only ever seen her in pictures. And you can look cute in a picture, right? (laughs) And you can look cute with a mask on too. It's like, really? Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. So this dance goes on for like a month where I would bring her bread like two or three times a week and we would just talk and she would make me quiche. And so we do this through much of November, like end of October through much of November. And it starts to get cold. No one wants to sit outside in the cold anymore. And my friend Mary has a kiln and Lauren's an artist and I have this big thing of clay. And I'm like, hey, I really want to play with this clay, but I'm incredibly overwhelmed about how to do this. And Lauren's like, I'll help you. And I was like, okay. So she comes over. We're still masked, right? Because it's still a pandemic. And we play with the clay and we watch a movie. And at this point, like, I am catching feels, right? We're texting all day. I'm hanging out outside her house, right? But we're still, I'm quoting, air quoting, friends, right? And we watched the movie and we decided to eat some leftovers because I was like, I made tortillas. Shall we have tacos? And she takes her mask off and I was like, damn it, she's cute. Like without the mask and not in a photo. (laughs) She goes home and we text. And two days later, she was like, hey, I don't think we can just be friends. And I was like, I don't think we can just be friends either. They can't be friends, so what can they be? One day after a workout, Ashley stops by Lauren's house. So I show up at her house and I get out of the car and I just like grab her and we like make out. And my whole body explodes with like, what the fuck? And I go home and I call all my friends and I call my widows. So I was like, oh my God, you guys, I just made out with Lauren. The next morning we text and we're like, what the fuck was that? And I was like, I don't know. Like, what is this? Like, I go, can I see you tonight? And I go over to her house and we like literally make out for three hours. And then she comes over that Friday and we go on our first pandemic date, which was to hy V because she loves to grocery shop and I love a good errand. And that's a good grocery store. It's yeah, a good grocery store. It is. It is. So we go to hy V and make dinner and make out until the wee hours of the night. And I was like, I don't want you to go home. And she was like, I don't want to go home either. And so we had an impromptu sleepover and... You know, I think she went home for about three or four days after that and then came back over with a suitcase and her office. (laughs) And like good lesbians, we've been together ever since. (laughs) So it is so incredibly similar to how hard I fell in love with Corbett. There's something about falling in love after loss that helps a person realize the enormity 
of what they lost when their person died. I mean, Lauren, my current human, and I were walking through the grocery store and someone said, you guys are the cutest couple. And I started sobbing and Lauren looked at me and she was like, why are you crying? And I was like, I never got seen as a partner. And this is so amazing to be seen as a partner. It's amazing to be seen as a partner. And it's amazing to have a partner. It's amazing to be struck by the same good kind of lightning twice. To be somebody's lucky penny again. Oh my, she's a unicorn. Like, I can hold her trauma and she can hold my grief like nobody ever. And I sent her the pictures of Corbett on life support. I have this photo that I think is the most saddest, beautiful photo you've ever seen. And it's, it is Corbett on total life support. And you can see all of the tubes, right? And it's me standing over her. And I'm just like looking at her with like the most love. Like you can see the love and the tragedy of what's about to happen in that photo. And I sent her that photo. And nobody wants to see that photo. It's too hard for them. And she saw it and she just like said, like, I see how much you loved this person. And she just saw it and saw us and isn't scared about the fact that like, I now love two people, right? And I talk about Corbett all the time and I tell stories and it doesn't scare her and she's not weird about it, you know? And it's, I don't know where she came from, and I'm never letting her go. This has been terrible. Thanks for asking. I'm Nora McNerney. Our team is Marcel Malikibu, Jacob Maldonado-Medina, Hannah Meacock-Ross, and Jordan Turgeon. Our theme music is by Joffrey Lamar Wilson, and we are a production of American Public Media.